All right, Acts chapter 27. You can see, obviously, I have a map behind me because we're going to do a lot of traveling today. And sometimes it's just helpful to chart where Paul is going or where this ship is going, where his journey takes us. It's been said in chapter 27, I didn't confirm this, uh, but in chapter 27 of Acts, I've, I've heard it read, I think, in the past that um, it is, in the, in the Bible, there are, there are words that are used in Greek or in Hebrew that they're only used once in all of Scripture, and they're, they're called hapax legomena. There's one time, and so they become difficult because you don't have anywhere else to compare these words to, Right? Um, you, don't, you don't know where else in Scripture, at least, where you can go and say, okay, well, Paul used it like here, Moses used it here. We can't do that. And those are all through Scripture. But in Acts chapter 27, there's the most concentration of them in all of the Bible. And because it's, so, it's such a seafaring text, it's all these technical terms for sailing and whatnot, and we're going to see them really on the move. And it's an exciting chapter. Uh, it is very detailed. In fact, there have been people in the past who have set off uh, I've read of one that tried to disprove Luke's account of this and one that just wanted to re-experience um, Paul's and Luke's journey and sailed this same route recently and found it incredibly accurate, both of them actually. The one who set off to disprove uh, found it so accurate he actually converted and became a believer and, and a believer in the inspiration of Scripture because it's just so bang on exactly what this trip would have been like is what we find recorded here in Acts chapter 27. And so it's action-packed. We're going to zip through this. Uh, there's a lot going on, but it's really just Paul going from place to place. And as we go, I think what we'll see is, I mean, I can't help but read God's providence in all of this. Like God leading through storms and um, opposition and all of these things to get Paul to where he needs to go, which is ultimately to Rome. Right? He wants, this is going to be the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, before he ascends, tells them, you are going to be my witnesses Witnesses of my death, burial, resurrection, not only in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And Rome really was the ends of the earth in those days. He's getting to Rome. And so we're going to see that today as we get there. So as we get into this uh, chapter 27, it starts moving right off the bat. It says, when it was decided that we, and you'll notice there that plural, it's uh, Luke has joined him again. We've noticed that throughout Acts, that sometimes Luke is with him, sometimes not. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy... They proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. A centurion is what? Over 100 people. people. So it's a military man, and apparently in this boat he had a centurion, uh, and they're on this boat. And usually these boats were shipping grain, oftentimes from Egypt toward Rome. Okay? Uh, they're moving cargo and stuff like that about, so Paul's entrusted to this, but they would also oftentimes move prisoners as well. And why do you think they would take prisoners to Rome? For sure, yes. And so in this, we're going to see there's other prisoners on board. Paul is one who has appealed to Caesar. They probably all have not appealed to Caesar. So where, where do you think, just a guess, where are these prisoners headed? Why are they being taken to Rome? Well, it depends on their charge. And also they're probably going to be slaves or something like that. Yeah. Or go to the Colosseum, right? Like for sport a lot of the times. Like these are the shipping people to be used for entertainment at times, right? So there's lots of different reasons, but you can just try to get a picture of this ship moving. There's soldiers, there's all these different criminals that are going, perhaps to meet their doom, to meet their fate, right? Um, and embarking in an Ad- Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And so now who's with Paul? We've got Luke and Aristarchus. Now, this is the first hint that we have that um, 
Paul was not seen as a violent criminal. Like not any criminal can just bring, co bring companions with him, right? There's something about him, and we'll see that through these two chapters, that he's given certain privileges that maybe other prisoners aren't, because remember the circumstances. He's not convicted of anything at this point, right? He has appealed to Caesar, um, a lot of times to keep him safe, because the Jews wanted to kill him, and said, let's take him to Caesar. So he's got a little crew with him. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Another example. Not every prisoner gets to leave the ship and go and receive care from his brethren. So we see now we're moving. We started here. We're moving up the coast into Sidon, and that's where he received care. Exactly, and I'm with you, Rose. Like, I think by the end of this, and there's some other interactions we have with this uh, centurion, we don't know the answer, obviously, but you have to wonder. Like, he's really starting to treat Paul indifferently and believe him in certain times and stuff. You wonder if Paul was, if we know anything about Paul, he probably was not silent on that ship, right? <laughs> he probably took that as a captive audience to uh, proclaim what he's always been proclaiming. Uh, verse 4, from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. Okay, so now we have this great exchange over there at the top. You can't really see again, but they are moving from here. They change ships in and around here because now they're going to go over to Italy. And this is probably where the grain is coming into place. Because Egypt, they would get a lot of grain from Egypt. They'd move them up here and go along the... Um, along the land to take it over to Italy. And so they jump into a new ship here. And so you can almost see, like, uh, there are some similarities here. A little bit, I think. It's sometimes I feel like it's been made too much of, but to the story of Jonah, as we get onto, uh, he's getting, they're looking for a ship. Right? He gets onto the ship, and we're going to see the, the storm. We're going to see pagans over on the island of Malta get converted or get the gospel. There's some similarities there that some commentators have noticed. But I just, this, you see this shipyard, and you see the centurion looking for a ship that's going to the place they want to go. Pay the fare and bring your cargo on board. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salomon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to the men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So you see that they've, several times they've hit snags. The winds aren't cooperating. It's, it's tough sailing, and they come to this fair havens, and it says in verse 9 that when considerable time has passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over. What fast are we talking about here, do you think? Maybe your text uh, has a little footnote, or uh, if you have a study Bible, it gives you the cheat sheet. A day of atonement, right? Which, if you know anything about the Jewish calendar, that is in the fall, so September, sometimes even into October. And He's saying that we stayed at this place late, and the centurion's waiting at this place in Fair Havens here off of Crete. He's waiting for better weather. Because they're about to, you can see, they're about to take off across this big expanse of the Adriatic Sea. They need good weather, or it's, it could be trouble, right? And so they're waiting, waiting. He's waiting, and, but at the same time, winter's coming. 
which is even worse. And so they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Do we winter here at Fair Havens, or do we try to make a go of it and brave the weather that has not let up? And what does Paul say? Yeah, Paul says, uh, not a good idea. Now, this is an interesting text here. So we need to conclude here that Paul here is not speaking inspired by the Holy Spirit. We'll see that later on. He's just giving his advice because Paul has spent a lot of time on boats at this point, right? Like we've seen him go several times and he just says, whoa, not a good idea. You know, I, my take, if you ask me, and they didn't, but this is classic Paul, if you, if you ask me, if you ask me, this is dangerous and we're going to lose a lot of stuff. We're going to even lose lives. Exactly. He's been shipwrecked. We learned in Corinthians stuff that he was shipwrecked several times. So this is not his first rodeo. And he's just saying, from my point of view, this is not, uh, um, this is not a good idea. Now, interesting, again, who is he? He's a prisoner on this ship. And here he is speaking up, talking about how they should be sailing the, the boat, which is pretty presumptuous. But it shows, again, that he had some clout on the boat a little bit. Now, verse 11, they don't actually listen to him. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul, and we would all say, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the, the captain and the pilot of the ship, and then there's this, uh, this prisoner. Uh, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to pull out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing somewhat southeast and northwest and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close to inshore. And so instead of listening... You can see that they, they make a go for Phoenix, which would be more on the corner, so they can uh, go, they can see both directions, right? So they're, all they're wanting to do is move along Crete, okay, to get to this other port, this well-known port here. But before very long, verse 14, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquilo. And footnote says just a northeaster, right? A violent northeast wind. Uh, that comes down. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. So they did not listen to Paul. They're just trying to go along this island. This violent wind comes down and whoa, they go off into the, into the, uh, the middle of the sea, right? And all they want to do is go along this. They just risk it to go along this lion, uh, island and this wind comes along and takes them out. And they're just driven along. They can't get into the wind, so they have to just let it go, let it ride. Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Claudia, which isn't on our map here, uh, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way, they let themselves be driven along, trying to slow their progress, trying to get some control over this vessel. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Interestingly, is that not what Paul kind of said would happen? I, I just have this hunch that we're going to lose some things here, and here they have to start throwing cargo and stuff overboard, losing some of their eventual um, gains. Right? It says, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, in those days, they didn't have, obviously, GPS or even compasses. They navigated by the stars, right? And so with cloudiness and storms and being tossed all about, at this point, they don't know where they are. They don't know where they are. They, and that's really a hopeless thing for sailors, obviously, and they, it goes on for uh, long enough that they become um, basically hopeless at this point. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, 
You ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. In other words, a very apostolic, I told you so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you. Remember before he said we're going to lose life. That was him just shooting from the hip. This is what I think is going to happen. But now he says there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. So you can see the difference that time. It says, oh, angel of the Lord, this is clearly divine message through Paul, saying, here's the updated message. We're going to lose the ship. Um, we're, there's going to be a lot of damage taken, but we're not going to lose any lives. So take courage. Let's eat something. We're going to persevere. Some of them maybe have stopped eating because they just felt so hopeless. Why bother? We're going to die. Any, we're going to drown any moment. So, sorry? Seasick. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Verse 27. But when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Now, as experienced sailors, they can do this many different ways. I've read one account where some experienced sailors can actually smell that land is coming, right? That they, there's, when you're out in the middle of the sea, there's not a whole lot of smell except for the water and the salt and stuff like that. But when you get closer to land, something changes in the air and you can smell it. Some of these, apparently some of these experienced sailors, they sense, I think we're approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. In other words, a fathom is about six feet. So 20 fathoms. So they lower a weighted rope into the water, see how deep it is. Okay, we're 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. So what does that mean? It's getting shallower, right? We're moving up toward land. Now, fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern, the back of the boat, and wished for daybreak. So they are still blinded. They don't know where they are. If we keep going at this pace and things keep getting more shallow, we're just going to crash. Right? So instead, they realize that they're getting closer to land. They drop anchors off the back. Let's, say, let's just wait until daybreak. So then we can see at least the land that we're approaching. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. So now you have some people like, we're getting out of here. This is doomed. So they say, we're going to go lay some anchors out the front of the boat. But they actually lower the, they lower the boat out the side of the ship, right? And they're looking to escape but they're, they're pretending that they're going to drop more anchors. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 76 persons. So isn't it interesting? Can you see almost a, almost a microcosm of Paul's life on this ship? You know, he's a nobody, but all of a sudden, by this point, he's kind of the pastor of the ship, isn't he? Like, he's risen to this place of leadership, from still in chains, but or even metaphorically, but also he's leading this ship. And it, we're even told the congregation 
you know, 270. He's got this captive audience, and they're all listening to him now. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. So there's the wheat coming up from Egypt. They're throwing it off into the sea. Why would they try to lighten the ship at this point? Why? Yeah, they want it to rise as much as possible in the water so they can run it aground as high as possible and not hit rocks or reef or whatever the case may be because they know they're close to land, right? And so at this point, you can sense the desperation, maybe some hope because of what Paul has said, but they're still throwing their cargo, their precious cargo uh, uh, over the side. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. Notice the technicality of this. Like, I don't understand half of what's going on here. But from what I told, people who spend a lot of time on boats actually say, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. They were heading for the beach. And Luke's not a sailor either, right? He's a doctor. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And so somewhere in here, there, this is where the seas meet, and there's a reef developed in there, out from the sea. So they're looking at this land, they're going to full steam ahead, try to run it up on the beach, and instead they hit this reef, and they get stuck fast, the front of it. But in the meantime, the back is still being hit by this heavy waves, and it's being ripped apart. The soldier's plan was to kill the, passenger, the prisoners so that none of them could swim away and escape. That seems extreme. Why would they do that? Because their lives Right. You die, right? And so now we can apparently see land. Some of these prisoners see their chance. Right? We're stuck. The boat's being taken apart. They're just going to jump over, try to swim to land and disappear. And then they'll be free, is the thought. So instead of that happening, the soldiers decide we should probably kill them. But the centurion, now here's the... The switch, because at the beginning we saw the centurion. He was giving Paul some leniency, but he wasn't listening to him. But now the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. (laughs) What a safe voyage, right? So they've come all the way from Jerusalem, Caesarea, all the way to Malta. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the most uneventful trip, but they are safely to land. Okay, impressions from chapter 27. Uh, what's been going on here? Do you see God's providential hand guiding a little bit, at least? Um, why would God allow all of this to happen? If we were to guess, surmise, pool our ignorance, if we were to suppose upon God, why is he allowing all of this to happen? Well, how do you see God's hand at work here? Well, the centurion sounds like conversion is coming Yeah, it could be, right? And if not the centurion, certainly maybe some of the other uh, congregation <laughs> yeah, on this ship. What else? God will always heal through his hmm. What about when he doesn't, Rose? What about when he doesn't? Like, what about, you know, there's storms in my life that he doesn't see me through. Does that challenge God's faithfulness or his character? Obviously, you'd say no. Um, but, but sometimes, okay, that sometimes we'll pray to him for something and it doesn't happen. But God has better plans for us than we have for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So what we're praying for, he's probably saying, you know what, 
I've got something better, so I'm not going to give you what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah, so even in the midst of a storm where we can see no stars, we don't know where we're in, we're storm-tossed, um, and we don't necessarily know that we're going to end up safely on the island, right? But we do trust a Lord that is faithful anyway, that has good things for us, even if it's to take me home. I trust that that's the case. Um, and what is that trust based on, I guess? So I can't see anything. I, I'm completely disoriented in life, can't see the stars, I don't know where I am. We don't want to allegorize this too much, but we can see some parallels here with our life, right? Like, how do I, and how have maybe you've counseled other people through this that are in that season of life, how do you counsel someone to, to trust the Lord in a time like that when he seems very untrustworthy or um, you reflect, absent? You reflect on all that he has done. Okay. So recognizing that I, I'm not in control of the situation. I do know ultimately God is, and I have to remind myself of where he has worked. Hmm. So past faithfulness can fuel present trust. That's so biblical. You see Israel erecting these monuments all over the place, right? These, these Ebenezers. Um, why? Because generations will come that forget, that did not walk through the Red Sea, that did not do these things. They need these memorials that they can look back and say, God did show up then. As we're wandering through this wilderness, it doesn't seem like he is, but he has showed up in the past. He has been faithful to what he's promised. And we, I think you've talked about this in class before. And, you know, retrospect is such a gift. Looking back over time and seeing how the Lord had put things together. And Luke is probably not writing this as he's throwing up because of seasickness. He's, he writes it after the fact, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's looking back and seeing, like Jim said, what was God doing? He's not, he's not altering the facts, but he's, he gets the, the privilege of retrospect to see what the Lord had done, right? And you think of, they arrive on Malta now, and we'll get to that in a moment here. They arrive on Malta with nothing. The ship's stuck out being broke apart. Like, it's just and they swim to shore or float into shore on bits of the ship. They're just helpless. And the Maltese people here, what we see is that they come out and they help them. Right? Well, they wouldn't have needed that type of help. They may not have even gotten that type of welcome had they not been through this chaos. right? And the people would not be trusting Paul, as we'll see that they do. Like, there's so many things that as you look back, really God did knit this together perfectly for the salvation of the, Mal- uh, the island of Malta, or Melita, and, and onward. Like, he's always working things together. But hindsight is such a gift from the Lord. And, and that's certainly something we can apply in our lives, isn't it? Like, in the storms, 
again, no stars, cloudy skies. Like, it is hard to tell which way is up. But then, like tomorrow's saying, you can look back and say, I remember previous storms, though, and I can see in retrospect how the Lord used those in certain ways. And even when I can't see it, I trust that he did, right? Uh, I don't want to make my perception and my ability to solve back there the, 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 the final say of what's true or not. I'm trusting that the Lord does work things together, but sometimes he gives us those glimpses and sees we see what he's doing. We can praise the Lord for that. Maybe an interaction with someone or uh, growth in confidence. Or, as 1 Corinthians says, sometimes we minister to people out of past hurts that we've had to endure, right? And... Yeah. You know, it's just, hey, and then I was out in the middle of the sea, and people were about to, like, cast stuff overboard, they're going to have hope, but yeah. Lord showed up to me yeah. again, and I believe them, and here we are. Yeah. It's just another piece of the puzzle. And what, let's not uh, forget, where is Paul headed, and probably for what purpose? He's headed to Rome, probably to die. And remember, God rated his conversion and said he showed him all the things he must suffer for the sake of his name, right? He knows what lies ahead. Maybe Paul himself needs a pick-me-up. You know, maybe Paul, and we'll see, he gets, um, he gets courage from the people who meet him in Rome. But, like, this has been a long go. Like, this will now, by the time they get to Rome, it will be the better part of a year on this ship of just chaos. And Paul's still human. Is there a chance that he's maybe like, oh, man, is the Lord going to be faithful? Has he forgotten about me? You know? And then he comes along and says, not a hair on the head of anyone here will be touched. No one's going to die. And then that happens. It's like a reminder to Paul, remember, I'm good to my word. I'm good to my word. I said you're going to stand before Caesar. I said you're going to do these things. These things will happen. Maybe Paul himself needed an encouragement. Who knows? Again, we're getting into speculation, but you can see the Lord's, that's how God's providence works, right? All things work together for the good of those who love him. Sometimes that is crystal clear, and sometimes we take that by faith, right? But either way, it's true. And we see this in this chaos of chapter 27, um, in this, this, uh, this sailing vignette, I guess. Yeah, and it says pretty clearly in Hebrews that some of us have entertained angels unawares, right? Sometimes the Lord does send messages. Jim has told a story about um, being stuck in the mud with a pregnant wife, and 
people come in pristine clothes, right, and, and get you out of the mud. The Lord does send encouragement, whether um, explicitly supernatural like that, or sometimes in the form of a brother or sister in Christ, or whatever the case may be, or a reminder of past faithfulness. The Lord does send us what we need to carry on. And, and I don't want to liken myself or ourselves to Paul. It's very unique calling and a unique destination where he's headed. But the Lord certainly was taking care of him, wasn't he? And encouraging him and reminding him and reminding others through him. Um, you know, there's, could, could God have accomplished his purpose with just Paul surviving and no one else? Just Paul and Luke maybe to record it and no one else? Probably, right? But God, by his graciousness, spares everyone as a sign of his faithfulness and his power. Not a hair on the head of anyone here is going to perish uh, for the sake of Paul in this, go- this message. Pretty neat. Yeah, go ahead. I heard a commentary on, wasn't uh, God called Paul to like, preach to the ends of the earth? And uh, Malta might have been like a specific end of the earth to that yeah. area. Yeah. So like that whole journey that wasn't supposed to go there did go there yeah. because God wanted yeah. to go. Yeah. This was probably the first testimony to the gospel in Malta. Mm-hmm. All the other places had been reached before. Uh, even uh, Crete, mm-hmm. uh, that island yep. of Crete, uh, had uh, uh, a Christian testimony because uh, he tells Titus that the, the Cretans are slow to trust in the Lord. So, mm-hmm. so. Uh, uh, Yeah, and on uh, Thursday nights with a men's group, we're studying the letter to Titus, which if you know anything about Titus, Titus was a young man pastoring on the island of Crete, right, which was planted earlier on. But this Acts 1-8 idea of spreading the gospel, obviously we know that um, to the ends of the earth is fairly idiomatic, right? Did, did Paul get to North America? Did he get to these places? No. But that doesn't mean that the, the mission of Acts 1-8 was not accomplished, right? It's, it's saying it's idiomatic in that at this time, the Roman Empire was massive, right? It was huge. It, had, it was expanding. It had this massive scope. And if you could get to Caesar, you effectively got to everywhere, right? That's, that's, the, that's the, um, the reality. And so Paul is getting to Caesar so that the entire world effectively hears this gospel and then takes it as people move around and get to North America. The gospel gets elsewhere as well. But this is certainly a fulfillment of Acts 1.8, getting to these other places as he goes to, um, as he goes up to Rome. Well, let's keep on in chapter 28 then. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled the fire and received us all. So there you see, they were receiving them because of what had happened. They received them in the way that they did because of what had happened. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hands. So apparently the flames woke it from its slumber. It came out and bit Paul. Now, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. This is one example of a, um, a dangerous but very common ideology and religious view that bad things happen to bad people. I would say that's how most people live their lives, and good things happen to good people. Right? And you even see the personification of justice. 
justice, whatever that is, has not allowed, the universe has not allowed this murderer to go free. Now, as Christians, we know that we don't hold to that worldview, right? We hold that sometimes bad things happen to good people, people in Christ, right? People who are being made in Christ, and sometimes good things happen to bad people. That, it cannot be the final say. So right off the bat, they come to Malta, and you see this, this pagan but very common way of thinking, kind of a talionic justice. The universe has some power to correct, right? The sea didn't get him, but here you go. The viper got him. But because of that, because of that weak unfounded worldview, which again, I want to reiterate, a lot of our world operates on, something like this. Because of it, you see the, um, the, the fickleness of it in just a minute here. So undoubtedly, that justice has now uh, not allowed him to live. However, he shook out the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were all expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited long enough and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. All of a sudden. So now it's gone from this guy's a murderer deserving death to this guy is a god, clearly. So when you operate in such a way that what you see governs your entire worldview, then you get into this type of wishy-washy type of conclusions, right? Like, okay, he's obviously a terrible person. And he, oh, no, now he's divine because nothing can stop him. So they're just subject to whatever they see. They need, obviously, something more, more uh, rock solid than Paul's about to give that to them. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading men of the islands named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. So Publius is uh, a Roman outpost. Okay, so this is part of the Roman Empire. They have someone living on the island, um, taking care of the island, overseeing it. And it happened that the father of Publius was laying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Now, certainly, the healing of Publius' father is the miracle. Like uh, Paul works a miracle on this. The Lord heals this man through Paul to certainly testify to who Paul is right, and what he's about to say. Later on, when it says that the people of the islands, they heard of this, they start coming with diseases and coming to be cured. It's a different Greek word. Um, Who's with Paul? Let's remind ourselves. Luke. And Luke is a doctor. So it could be that they see this miracle working and people start flocking and Luke sets up a little missionary medical station and starts healing people with natural means. It could also mean that Paul keeps healing people. But because there's a different verb here, it could just mean that they they start coming and Luke sets up um, like Jim could tell you. You take modern medicine or more advanced medicine into a place that has none um, the simple means oftentimes can cure 90% of what ails that culture, right? And maybe Luke is bringing that to people. Uh, we don't know. But either way, people are getting healed. They're getting made better all over the place by God's providence. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. So they come in with this busted up ship. Uh, they can, they, and then through the kindness of these people and through Paul's ministry there, they give them everything they need. Look how God provides. They lose everything along the way and they leave fully restored again as they sail off. And this island has heard the gospel. Pretty neat. At the end of these three months, we set sail on the Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Anyone have a different translation? What does that say? The twin brothers. Twin gods. gods. So these would be the sons of Zeus. These two twin sons of Zeus who were kind of the patron gods of seafarers. So there's an interesting, a little bit of irony here. They have on this ship the gods that they prayed to for safe voyage, and yet who was the god that just brought them through 
um, through the storms and stuff, right? It was Yahweh himself. So they set sail on this, uh, this ship that has these two twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there on, now I just want to make, it's probably around March now. So remember, we had Day of Atonement, September, October, and that was even partway into the voyage. So we're looking at coming up on a year journey here to get from one place to another. And this is quite an endeavor. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came up to uh, Puteoli. There, we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus, we came to Rome. Thus, we came to Rome. Finally, we arrived at Rome, the place that we were intended to to be. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came up from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. See, there you go. The brethren came, they hear about Paul, they come to greet him, and even just their presence being around them lifts his spirits. I oftentimes think, I make the mistake of thinking Paul is this superhuman guy. And in many ways, he was very special. But man, he's still a, a man. And he's just spent a year ups and downs, chaos, seasick, am I going to die? No, the Lord says I'm going to live. People are hating him. We're going to kill the prisoners. No, we're not going to kill. I mean, at some point, there's some fatigue that sets in there, right? And he comes around the brethren, and he is taking courage again. He's recharged, ready for the mission. And honestly, I would say that that was one of the biggest, and is, continues to be, one of the biggest, um, not victims, uh, casualties of the past two years for the church is we are not around each other. We don't have the brethren, some people, and we lack courage. And we, we are living in a day and age in our culture where we need courage to stand for what is true. When the culture is not only saying we don't tolerate your views, like your views are archaic or old-fashioned or pathetic or whatever, but you're now the enemy. What you, what you believe is evil now. We need courage. And the enemy has done a great work to separate the body of Christ, and now we lack what can give us courage, what can lift us up. It's not that we're not saved, it's just we're weary from the battle out there, right? From the, the armor of God. Like, if I have to put on the armor of God every day by myself and wage war by myself, I mean, that is a beatdown. That takes its toll. I'm just a guy, right? I'm just a human. We need the body of Christ, the brethren, to encourage us and to build us back up. And even Paul needed that as well. Verse 16, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Another evidence that Paul is not a normal prisoner. He's not a convicted murderer or anything, like the Maltese assumed he was. He's allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Okay, let's dissect what Paul says here. He gathers the leading Jews of Rome together, and he first starts by defending himself, right? Why would he do this, do you think? Why does he start there? Well, maybe the story had gone all the way from Jerusalem to now Rome, that he was uh, convicted. Yeah. Even though he was falsely convicted. Mm-hmm. Wants to set the record straight right off the bat, right? And he did this before uh, some of the governors as well. I have a clean conscience. 
you know, I, am, I have done nothing wrong. I was, all charges were dropped, and yet they were going to kill me. They didn't want to let me go, so I appealed to Caesar. Here I am. I've done nothing wrong. And look why he's there. His, I am in chains. Why? For the sake of the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Messiah, Messiah right? Messiah and the kingdom to come. I am here for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad of you. So news hasn't traveled that far. We actually don't know any of the bad things that people are saying about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, so they have heard of the way. They have heard of this sect of Judaism, though. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So it doesn't have a good reputation. We don't know much about you, but this new Christian way, we've heard things about and we don't like it. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So remember who his audience is. We're talking about Jews here, and he's talking to them about the hope of Israel and the kingdom of God, which we are talking about ad nauseum in the Gospel of Matthew. We need to understand that the gospel of the kingdom of God is not the same as the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They overlap, but they are distinct. Okay? So here, very clearly, he's talking about the kingdom that they know exactly what he's talking about, and he's probably describing, them, describing to them how Israel had rejected and he's probably describing them in a lot of things that we're learning in Matthew's gospel. And clearly he's talking about Jesus, who was the Messiah, right? Who was the one that they had been waiting for. Uh, 24. 24, thank you. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. That's pretty standard fare, right, for an evangelistic appeal. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. So just like the apostles before him, he's met with resistance, and he doesn't shrink back. He puts the finger in their sternum, twists the knife, and he says, this was prophesied before in Isaiah. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. So this could be seen as the final nail in the coffin of this appeal to the Jewish people. Remember in Acts chapter 2, it was, turn so that times of refreshing may come. You might remember that was a long time ago now, chapter 2. But the times of refreshing is that millennial kingdom, Right? If you, return, if you turn back to the Lord, if you repent like you're supposed to, Jesus will return and bring this kingdom. And here it's like, this is the last time. We've gone to the end of the world. Acts 1-8 is fulfilled as far as this book is concerned. And they are rejecting it. Therefore, we're going to the Gentiles. Now this ushers in what Daniel would call the time of the Gentiles, which we're now living in today. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, again, not really a prisoner, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And that's how the book ends. Him sitting in a rented Airbnb, in an Airbnb in, in Rome, and people are just coming to him, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And that is the book of Acts. We have gone from Acts 1-8, the ascension of Christ, to Rome, where the gospel is just being propagated like crazy through Rome. This, this Acts is just like today. There are some people that will believe and 
And some people will wait until there's a catastrophe before they come to God. And because they think that what they're doing is right. Their work, you know, whatever, you know, believe in yeah. people. You're but so right. And the story when you were in the beginning when you said um, that guy that plotted the roof and the person converted. Um, I'm wondering if that person was open, but, mm. you know, I don't know. Maybe yeah, we don't know. Maybe your own belief. Yeah. And to your point, Rose, again, keeping in the context of Acts, what you just said, that catastrophe that brings people to the humility needed to trust Christ will happen for Israel. We're still waiting for that in the future. That is the whole point of the Great Tribulation, to bring Israel to this place of national repentance. We're still wait- that is still going to happen. But for now, they are hard-hearted, and they are... Um, they are stubborn, they have ears but not hearing, eyes but not seeing. And right now it's the time of the Gentiles in that we are progressively provoking Israel to jealousy and then we will be removed and God will deal with Israel again. This has been put on pause, it is not over. Um, that's the whole point of, if we go to Romans, Romans 9, 10, 11, is this uh, crazy three chapters where he talks about Israel, right? What about Israel? He's just come from Romans chapter 8 where he says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And people are saying, that's a nice promise. How do we know we can keep it? I mean, he made promises to Israel, right? He broke those, didn't he? And he's saying, and then he comes to Romans 9, 10, 11, he says, no, no, he's going to come back to Israel. He hasn't broken that promise. So you know you can, he keeps the promises of Romans 8 as well, because he's going to keep them with Israel as well. So it's not done. So when we go to Acts 29, a lot of people say, okay, so what happens next? Well, really, Acts 29 is Romans chapter 1. That is, there's a reason that they put it in this order, because now he's going to show, talk about how it is going from to the Gentiles. They've rejected. Now we see this transition to the Gentiles and how we have received it today. Um, so again, as we come to the end of Acts, I've said this so many, so many times, uh, we need to be very, Acts is incredibly important to understand the epistles, to understand the Gospels rightly. It is this transitional book that is just crucial. If we didn't have Acts, it would be Gospels, uh, Romans, you'd be like, how do those two things go together? There seems to be different audiences, different purposes, different language. Acts is this transition. And because it's this important transitional book, just another warning, if you ever come into a, a work or a person who is teaching something that is rooted primarily in Acts, their doctrine is rooted primarily in Acts, if you read something in the little text underneath that cites the scriptures that support the statement is primarily Acts, be suspicious. We, we can, all scripture is inspired by God and useful, but Acts as a transitional book, it is, is very difficult to build doctrine off of the book of Acts. You know, very, even, even the doctrine of salvation. For that, we go to Romans, we go to Ephesians, we go to these, because now we're past Acts, this transitional time, we're out of the Mosaic Law completely, and we can see these, this age of grace that we're living in now. Uh, very important to understand what Acts is as a whole so that we can rightly use it and rightly benefit it from it instead of saying, well, you know what the church is supposed to do? Go to Acts chapter 2. And you're like, well, that wasn't this. You know, that wasn't this at all. Well, the, you know, the so-and-so was saved this way. They were baptized. Okay, but these were Jews coming out of Judaism, and we just need to be very cautious. Super important book, um, but we want to use it rightly.